Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And it is Canelo Alvarez, Caleb Plan Fight Week. And anticipation and excitement is building in advance of Saturday's super middleweight unification in Las Vegas. So much so, actually, that a short video going around social media a few days ago showed one guy who decided to get the two fighters facing off shaved into his head. Um, at least I think and I hope that it was merely a haircut and that the dude hadn't gotten Caleb and Canelo actually tattooed there on the back of his skull. But uh, much as I may regret what I'm about to ask, it did get me to wondering, um, do you have any plans for any celebratory body art? Or in fact, is there any work you've already had done that you'd uh, like to share with us? Really, Karen? <laughs> Are, are, are you sure you don't want to just discuss our favorite and least favorite Halloween candies for opening banter <laughs> like every other podcast uh, that I listened to did this week? Um, I mean, I'm pretty sure celebratory body art is a phrase I've never spoken nor even <laughs> pondered. Um, but if I were to decorate my body in, in some way to get hyped for the fight, what I might do is put on a pair of sunglasses and ask a friend to open palm smack me in the face so that maybe Caleb Plant and I might end up with matching upper cheek cuts. Uh, and, and and I think I, I probably ought to stop there unless you want me to make a joke about dyeing my pubes red in honor of Canelo or something. So you sure, you sure you don't really want to talk about Halloween candy, Karen? Actually, <laughs> yeah, come to think about it. I have candy takes if you we, want to hear them. We, you know what? Let's do that. <laughs> All right, all right, here we go. Ready? Here's here's my number one candy okay. take. Okay. How weird is the almond joy? Right? It's coconut encased in milk chocolate. All right, makes sense so far. And then somebody decided, let's plunk down one almond right on top. Not a layer of crushed almonds across the whole thing. Just one single solitary almond, street value, maybe about half a penny, nestled in there. It feels like a candy that had to have been invented during the Depression or something. All right, Jerry. <laughs> Yeah, that was a bit, a bit Seinfeld stand-up, wasn't it? What's the deal with almond joy? <laughs> it is a, I'm not crazy, right? It's a very strange candy when you stop and think about it. Yeah, but there are actually some peculiar candies that sort of do the rounds that I struggle to think my people would eat them, to be perfectly honest with you. But there you go. That's, oh, yeah? that's Wait, a whole well, other... Now, now well, I want to hear it. What's on, what's on your list? Well, of, I, uh... haven't, I haven't really worked it out that, that extensively. <laughs> and also, if you, you really don't, You want... don't have a full stand-up bit ready <laughs> to go? <laughs> I do, but that's by subscription only on oh, my Crazy Candies Oh the World <laughs> podcast. I hope it's not Kieran's Crazy Candies spelled all with K's. I hope you have the uh, the foresight not to do that. Oh, you mean like uh, Krusty's Christmas Classic? <laughs> For example, sure. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Ooh, good Krusty. Good Krusty. Thank I like you. it. Oh. This was an unanticipated start to this podcast. <laughs> Does that augur well or poorly? I don't know. For the few of you who are still with us, we have a packed show for you. Um, as mentioned, it is, of course, the last Monday before Canelo Alvarez faces off with Caleb Plant at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas for all these super middleweight marbles. And we will be speaking with Caleb Plant as he discusses that now infamous fracas at the press conference in Los Angeles uh, that Eric mentioned and why he is so confident of victory. There is also some news to break down, uh, including Clarissa Shields suffering her first pro loss albeit in a cage rather than a ring. But we begin just across the street from the MGM at the recently renamed Michelob Ultra Arena at Mandalay Bay. I always just preferred it when it was the Mandalay Bay event center myself, yeah. but commerce marches on, my friend. <laughs> we are, we're in no position to resist it, as hard as we may try. Yeah. But anywho, on Saturday, lightweight prospect Michelle Rivera remained unbeaten. Future welterweight superstar Jerron Ennis made a huge impression. And in the main event, Rajat Butayev ground down and stopped Jamal James in the ninth round. Yeah, James started well enough against Butayev, using his legs and his jab and, and keeping his onrushing opponent at bay and, and, and giving as good as he got in some of the early exchanges. But Butayev kept coming and in the fourth round might have hurt James after switching to southpaw. James's movement diminished. He was forced to stand and fight. And Butayev, despite a point deduction in the fifth, appeared to move into the lead on the scorecards by about the seventh or eighth round. And then in the ninth, 
a sequence of punches backed James up to the ropes and prompted referee Celestino Ruiz to step in and halt the fight at 2:12 of the round. With the win, Butayev moves to 14 and 0, 11 KOs, while James falls to 27 and 2 with 12 knockouts. Two major talking points here: the way the fight ended and the almost nine rounds that set up that ending. Mm-hmm. Kieran, did you agree with the stoppage? And how was Butayev able to be so effective in this fight? So the best thing that I can say about the stoppage is it was arguably better than the point deduction, but arguably. <laughs> um, my heart sinks now when I see Celestino Ruiz mm-hmm. in, as the third man in the ring, and this fight proved to be no exception. At least he didn't try to take points off either man for touching feet when Butayev turned southpaw. Um, but he's... Look, he was he was overly officious as he often is. I thought he got in the way of the action, um, and particularly in uh, frustrating Butayev's uh, attempts at aggression. And and I did. I thought he was far too swift to stop the fight. Yes, the tide had turned against James. It was turning increasingly strongly, arguably against him. He was struggling to get to terms with Butayev after about that fourth round. But even so, some of the rounds were still relatively close um and i think he was actually still ahead on one scorecard after eight and although he was losing a sequence of rounds he was in contention in a lot of them i guess if you're going to be devil's advocate you could say that you know it felt as if butayev could hurt and was hurting james whereas james you know even when he landed with those crisp clean uppercuts didn't seem to be discouraging butayev at all and you could make the case that it was going to be much harder for james to turn the fight around than it was for for Butayev to sort of increase the pressure. You could maybe, again, I'm being devil's advocate still here, arguing it's one of those fights where maybe one guy is, even if it doesn't look as if he's taking a massive amount of punishment, there's an accumulation of it, and it's one of those fights that could be harmful. Honestly, I just thought it was a rough, tough fight, and that's what these guys sign up for. And although it did feel as if Butayev was clearly on the path to victory, that was not a good stoppage. Um, before I talk more about Butayev, something tells me <laughs> that Eric stoppage commentator Raskin has something to add here. Yeah, I, I got to jump in. Uh, you will be uh, quite unsurprised to learn that I hated this stoppage. Um, in the moment, I wanted to give Ruiz the benefit of the doubt because he's inches away. I'm thinking maybe right. he saw something in James's reactions that I couldn't. On the replay, it was confirmed that this stoppage was outrageous. Um, Specifically, that round, the first two minutes of the round, James had been doing some of his best work in a while. Um, Then he took a couple of fairly ordinary punches and backed up. He rolled with the last two punches. Neither one landed, proof that he could still defend himself. He was wearing down and had been for the last four or five rounds. Absolutely. So I fully support Ruiz's instinct to keep a close eye on him and have Mm -hmm. a possible stoppage in mind. But... This was just awful decision-making. Uh, he robbed Butayev of the glory of a clear-cut win, and he robbed James, as you were saying, of a chance to win. Even if it was unlikely, the cards were split. He was still in the fight. Probably wasn't going to come back and win, but he, he seemed to be getting a second win that round. And he's too much of a class act to rip into the referee. But yeah. You saw the way he argued in the moment, right as the stoppage was made. That was how he really felt. And then he, and then he cleaned it up and, and decided to, uh, you know, be fully respectful and all that. But um, uh, Bill Detloff, my uh, podcasting ex-wife, uh, tweeted, this ref has been terrible in every fight I've seen him work. And I know you feel that way. I feel yeah. that way. That about sums it up. And look, refereeing is a hard job. Not everybody is cut out for it. Uh, I've seen enough of Celestino Ruiz. I'm a little surprised that he's still getting some quite high-profile gigs. I I would have thought that some of the very obvious errors in the way he's gone about his business in a couple of fights, particularly, uh, you know, that's just Chris Stevenson fight, I think it was, when he was trying to basically disqualify both fighters for stepping (laughs) on each other's feet. You would have thought that would be, you know what, dude, let's put you down in the minors for a little bit and let's work out some stuff. Um... Yes. Uh, and, and instead, instead they're flying him into Vegas yeah. where, the, you know, the, in theory, they should have a decent pool of referees exactly. to choose from. It's not like, you know, the uh, you get a fight in the Midwest and you, and you give the relatively local right. guy a shot for him to be getting plum assignments in Vegas. Uh, yeah, some, something's something's breaking down there. Agreed. Agreed. But like you said, the part of the problem here is that Butayev was denied what he looked to be on the road to getting, which was right. a clear-cut victory. Um, 
he he certainly did you know have the momentum and and i think a large part of the reason for that which i didn't expect was the unpredictability in his offense I, you know when, I, when we made our picks last week i mentioned that there were times on video where i'd seen butayev almost stand still just within range as if he's you know eyeing up his opportunity and waiting for his moment to move in and i thought that would really work against him uh, against jamal james and early on in that very first couple of rounds it appeared that maybe it would be the case but he actually he used his jab very effectively. We talked about that last week, how he had a good jab but didn't use it enough. Um, he changed up his angles. He changed up his stances, as we've already talked about. And his timing was very hard to predict. He'd, he'd, sometimes he'd come in behind the jab, and then sometimes he'd just launch uh, a, a lead right or a lead left, depending on his stance from distance. Um, he would he would move his head better than I thought he sometimes has done. And I thought he was sliding in and out of range better than, than, than I'd seen before. Basically he was just a lot less predictable. Plus he really abused James long body whenever he could. And he also just kept punching even when James was, you know, covering up and maybe looking for an opportunity to, to clinch and move out the way, despite, you know, Ruiz getting in the way quite often and trying to prevent him from doing that. I thought of the performances of his that I have seen um, from Butayev, uh, I thought it was in, by far his most impressive and coming yeah. against by far his most significant opponent. Agree. Yep. Um, so now, you know, we talked to Jamal James last week and as he well said, hey, look, doesn't matter, you know, what I want or what I look ahead to. If I, you know, lose this fight, then I'm at the back of the back of the line and, and this Butayev's going to get his opportunity. And we now have a situation that we touched on last week where one of the alphabet bodies it sees this as part of a four-man tournament um, with Butayev now in line to face the winner of your Dennis Ugas and Amantis Stanionis, although Ugas doesn't seem very keen on any of this. How would you rate Butayev's chances against either Ugas or Stanionis? And now having lost this fight, what should Jamal James be doing next? Uh, I'll, I'll take James first. I think keep on keeping on. Um, yeah. I, I know he's uh, engaged to get married. They talked about that on the broadcast. So, you know, do that. Take a little yep. break. But um, this is who Jamal James is. He's not a world beater. He's just someone who will go close either way with anyone in the lower half of the top 10 at welterweight. Uh, This is a setback, but he can still make solid paychecks fighting fellow contenders. He makes entertaining fights. Um, We advertise this as an excellent style matchup, and it Mm -hmm. was just that. I see this as a defeat that doesn't really change James's trajectory that much. and by the way, I am starting to wonder just a bit if there's a curse of the Raskin and Mulvaney podcast. I think it's two guests in a row, uh, Jamal and Jericho O'Quinn, who lost oh, yes. right after coming on the pod. So <laughs> Caleb Plant should be very nervous, is, is what I'm saying. <laughs> or should be trying to book us with Canelo as soon as possible. <laughs> there you go. Right. Even it out a little. Um, moving on to Butayev. He's a badass. Uh, you you yeah. can outbox him, but it won't be easy. And uh, not many welterweights will be able to outfight him. I'd make him a small underdog against Ugas and a decent favorite over Stanionis. Although, as we said last week, and as you just uh, alluded to, Ugas is not participating in this tournament if he's able to land any kind of a bigger fight. But look, Butayev is clearly an excellent fighter. My biggest criticism of him is that his entrance music sucks. If, if that's my biggest criticism, I guess that's a good sign for you. It, it had flutes and stuff. Unacceptable as pump-up music. Um, but he, he's a heck of a pressure fighter. He goes yeah. to the body. He uses the jab even when giving away height. The switching to southpaw was extremely impressive. Yeah. He faints well. There, there were a couple of moments where he fainted with the left and froze James and landed the right. Um, he builds momentum and gets stronger as the fight goes on. He fits very nicely into this loaded welterweight top 10. Yeah. And speaking of the loaded welterweight top 10, in the co-main event, Jaron Boots Ennis improved to 28-0, 26 KOs with a first-round knockout of Thomas Delorme. Last week, Karen, you and I both predicted that Delorme would at least give Ennis some rounds, but as it turned out... He couldn't even give him one full one. Uh, also last week, uh, I called Ennis our favorite and everybody's favorite prospect. I assume you agree that he's now officially past prospect status. Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, he's now he sort of leapt from prospect through contender in, into like leading contender status. I mean, he's yeah. one of the very best fighters in the welterweight division right now. Um, honestly, I always try not to overreact to what I've just seen. Um, but seeing what he did to Delorme that no one has done to Delorme, right. 
based on top of what we've been watching from him over the last couple of years. I honestly, outside of, say, Bud Crawford, I don't know that I'd make him much of an underdog against anyone in the division right now. And, and that includes Errol Spence. Um, Jerron Ennis is a phenomenal fighter. He is good technically. He's compact and balanced. His punches are beautifully short and straight, and yet just absolutely loaded with power all at the same time. He's accurate. Um, he's simply ridiculously good. In fact, in terms of his combination of sort of t- technical ability and poise and precision he does remind me a little bit of a young bud but hmm. he's got that much more aggression and power you know bud likes to toy with his opponents and break them down and finish them off and ennis goes straight for the kill each time he's got that rare combination of, of aggression and power and technique he, he has an immense future and to see just the you know the way he disposed of delorme just really had him reeling i thought from those stiff jabs very early on before he even started landing those power shots and then he saw his opportunity and and finished alome off yeah i think he has an immense future it's difficult for me to see what the ceiling could be for jerome boots ennis and the seemingly inevitable eventual clash with virgil ortiz jr is going to be a thing to behold <laughs> yeah yeah oh, uh, F- philly baby city of champions we dominate all sports or at I least you, one sport. One sport. <laughs> one sport, maybe, yeah. Um, in the opener, Michel Rivera boxed his way to a unanimous shutout decision win over Jose Matias Romero. Rivera climbs to 22 and 0 with 14 KOs. Matias Romero drops his second in a row to vault to 24 and 2 with eight stoppages. It's a very different showing from Rivera than the last time we saw him when he recovered from a third round flash knockdown to stop John Fernandez in the eighth. Afterward, Eric. He said he's sort of ready and waiting for a title shot. Al Bernstein agreed. Is he? Uh, He looked outstanding in this fight. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Showed a lot of improvement from the last fight to this one. And he's clearly talented. And he might be able to hang with the best lightweights in the world. But I don't see the point in rushing. Um, he, He called out Tank Davis and Teofimo Lopez. I think he'd be well served getting more experience first. Getting through a tough test or two. And that would improve his chances of beating one of those guys when he does get that fight. Um, Longer term, absolutely. Add him to the lightweight mix. Maybe he's the fifth prince, for all we know. Um, But uh, in this particular fight, fight, boy, did he turn Matias Romero into a different fighter than the one we saw against Isak Cruz. Romero could not get anything done. Rivera's jab was on point. His hand speed just blew Romero's away and really made it impossible for Romero to counter effectively, which was clearly his game plan. Rivera even did look a little bit like Muhammad Ali at times when he was jabbing and bouncing on his toes. This was the easiest to score 100 to 90 fight you'll ever see. There there just wasn't a single round you could consider giving to Romero. Uh, Unlike the Jamal James fight, this one, I wouldn't have minded a stoppage, even though Romero wasn't getting hurt at all. Mm. Uh, but, you know, from about round seven on, he was down to like a 0.01% chance of winning. I, I wouldn't have minded if his corner had thrown in the towel or the referee had even stepped in and said he'd seen enough um, just because uh, it was that one-sided. Really impressive stuff from Rivera. I'm much higher on him now than I was after he mm. beat Fernandez, but he could still use more seasoning, I think. I think so, too. All right, let's uh, update our picks contest. We knew going into this week that it was going to remain deadlocked no matter what. As it turned out, we did progressively worse with our picks as the (laughs) evening went along. Uh, We each scored the maximum three points for picking Rivera by unanimous decision. We got two points for picking Ennis by KO, but overestimating how many rounds he would take. And we got the main event completely wrong as we each picked Jamal James to win on points. That leaves us both on 61 points as we head into next week's big card. So let's move on to that big card. Uh, next week's Showtime pay-per-view event in Las Vegas, headlined, of course, by Canelo Alvarez versus Caleb Plant for the undisputed super middleweight championship. We're spreading our preview over two podcasts. We'll have a, a full breakdown of the X's and O's of the main event and the three undercard bouts on Friday, uh, when we'll also look at the various sportsbook odds and make our official predictions. But for now, let's take a big picture look at the matchup. Kieran, Canelo is the clear favorite here, and deservedly so, given his record and quality of opposition. But I've heard more than a few whispers from observers and experts since this fight was announced, supposing that, given his skills and boxing style, Plant could, at the very least, pose a tougher test for Canelo than a lot of his recent opponents have. So 
Let me ask you this. Since suffering his lone professional defeat against Floyd Mayweather in 2013, Canelo has gone 14-0-1 against Alfredo Angulo, Arislandi Lara, James Kirkland, Miguel Cotto, Amir Khan, Liam Smith, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., Gennady Golovkin, Rocky Fielding, Daniel Jacobs, Sergey Kovalev, Callum Smith, Avni Yildirim, and Billy Joe Saunders. That's arguably a Hall of Fame career by itself. In theory, on paper, where would you rank Plant among that group of mostly solid opposition? So I think he's probably very close to the top. I, I mean, obviously you put Golovkin at number one, and that was mm-hmm. evident in in the extreme closeness of their two fights. That Golovkin could very easily have gone two and zero in those two fights, or one and one, or basically anything better than the o one and one that he did <laughs> right. go. Um, feel like everyone else, or the the rest, that the highest of the rest are battling for second there. Uh, he's potentially in that. Eris, Landy, Lara, Daniel Jacobs, Billy Joe Saunders level of opposition, but not necessarily because of his record to this point, but because of what the eye test tells us. And, and that alludes to what you just talked about here and in, in, in Styles Make Fights. Plant's a very good boxer, but he's a slight anomaly. He's a boxer with a mean streak, too. And, you know, he might not have shown much knockout power, but yeah, I think he hits hard enough to keep his opponents honest. Although, you know, whether he'll hit Canelo hard enough to gain his respect, I don't know. But He's tall, he's got a good jab, he's got excellent footwork, he's technically very sound. And it's that combination of his style and the skill with which he executes that style that makes him appear to be a high-level opponent. I mean, out of context, in a sense of what has this guy done in his career, you probably put him behind Lara, you put him behind Kodo, behind Khan, behind Jacobs, behind Kovalev. You might have him near the bottom. But it's that combination of size, style, and skill, the sense that his is exactly the kind of style with which Canelo struggles that I think makes this a dangerous fight for Canelo potentially and makes him appear to be potentially one of the more dangerous opponents that he's faced in that incredible stretch. Um, The one caveat that I'll put there is I thought something quite similar about Callum Smith Mm. um, before he faced Alvarez and and we saw what happened there. So so that's kind of where I'd put him, I think. Um, Which sort of makes me think that, in a sense, it's an unusual matchup, right? In that Plant's an entirely credible and dangerous opponent who just may have the right style to pick apart Canelo. And yet... Such has been Canelo's level of dominance that a plant win would be a major upset. But I was wondering, how big of an upset do you think it would be if it were to happen? Like on a scale of, say, Christopher Rosales, Diego Higa is one, and Buster Douglas, Mike Tyson is 10. Where does a plant win register? Is there a recent upset win in your mind to which it would be roughly comparable should it happen? Hmm. Um, well, taking my opinion out of it to start, just looking first at the official sportsbook odds, they still have Plant around a six to one underdog. Um, we will discuss that much more on Friday's pod, but I'll just say that that feels a little wider than it should be um, with the number position there because the sportsbooks anticipate public money on Canelo mm-hmm, and they're trying mm-hmm. to encourage more balanced action. So. On to your question of, of how big an upset this would be, where it lands on the scale in terms of how loudly it would resonate. So you've got Douglas Tyson as a 10, Rosales Higa, which was just a couple of years ago and apparently was the upset of the year, and yet I remember nothing about it. So that seems <laughs> that seems a fair, uh, fair fight to call a one in terms of shaking up the world. I guess Plant over Canelo is probably about a seven. Mm-hmm. Um, it's far from unthinkable. But I don't see too many people actually predicting it outright, and it would have major repercussions in the sport, you know, knocking off the biggest star in boxing, the number one pound for pounder on the great majority of people's lists, a guy who hasn't lost in more than eight years. It's not Douglas Tyson, and it's a notch below Ruiz Joshua or Rockman Lewis, but it's still quite seismic uh, if it happens. The immediate recent example that comes to mind is... Teofimo Lopez upsetting Vasily Lomachenko because that was the then number one pound for pound mm-hmm. guy on many lists getting dethroned. But it just wasn't that big of an upset because everyone was high on Lopez's talent. Uh, I'd been saying I thought Loma's absolute peak was a few fights behind him. He was like a two to one or three to one favorite. It wasn't a shocker. So plant beating Canelo would definitely be bigger than that. It might be somewhere in the vicinity of Vernon Forrest beating Shane Mosley the first mm. time, which was 20 years ago now, if you want to feel old. Um, Mosley was arguably number one pound for pound. This would be around that level. Uh, Forrest undefeated, but somewhat unproven, like Plant. In the same era, I would say 
Antonio Tarver over Roy Jones, the first fight, if Tarver had gotten the decision, would have been Mm -hmm. that level of upset. But by the second fight, we kind of knew Tarver beating Roy was possible. That was more shocking in how it happened than in the fact that Tarver won. If Caleb Plant ices Canelo in the second round, then this would be right on par with that, I would say. Um, But if it's more straightforward, say Plant outboxes Canelo, wins a deserved decision, I'd say Forrest Mosley is the best comp I can think of, but it still might resonate more than that one did because Canelo is the biggest star in the sport and Sugar Shane wasn't quite. I will say, if Plant pulls it off, it's a bigger upset and a bigger story than the most recent big upset, Usyk beating Joshua, which was itself a fairly big story. Canelo losing whenever it happens will be massive news, even in in the mainstream sports world. So I I would say that's kind of where I'm positioning it. Bigger than Usyk Joshua, somewhere in that Forrest Mosley range, I think. Hmm. I think that sounds fair enough. Um, Of course, one man who not only sees an upset, but is banking on it, is, of course, Caleb Plant. And uh, we had the chance to talk to him briefly over Zoom as he took some time out during his final preparations. It's a much shorter interview than we normally have on the podcast. We had an eight minute hard out as he was doing a string of these in a row. So there's very little in the way of follow-up questions. Uh, That said, we're of course extremely happy to have whatever time he was able to give us. And we began by asking him about that press conference scuffle. So we want to start by going back a few weeks, Caleb. Uh, the, the PR tour for this fight kicked off with some excitement when you and Canelo came to blows at the opening press conference. I'm sure you're sick of talking about the actual scuffle by now, but I'm curious about the mentality behind it. Do, do you feel it was important for you to, to take a stand there and show that you weren't going to be pushed around figuratively or literally by, by Canelo and his team? Yeah, but I mean, you know, not that's just who I am as a person. It wouldn't matter, you know, I've always been like that. You know, I'm just, nobody's just going to come and bully me and expect me to just stand there or push me. You know, that's not how things work, at least not with me. So, but, you know, we, I have talked about it a lot since then. I've been asked many questions on it and, you know, I tell them all the same thing. I mean, that's happened plenty of times before us and it's going to happen plenty of times after us, you know, as part of boxing. So I've been in a lot worse scuffles than that. So, I mean, it, it just it is what it is. It's not, it's not really a big deal. One of the things you talked about, and have talked about that clearly has gotten under his skin is the issue of PEDs, um, both with him and with his, his teammates. How confident are you that you're going to be facing a clean fighter on November 6th? And, and what kind of protocols are in place to safeguard that? I mean, you know, I, all I can do is, you know, keep my fingers crossed and hope for the best. But, you know, I can't worry too, too much about that. All I can worry about is the things that I'm in control of. And that's me and my team and my preparation and my due diligence and um, my discipline and my dedication to to my craft. So that's what I'm focused on. Um, my team's done a great job. Camp's going great. Sparring's going great. Weight is great. Everything's on point as uh, as usual. And um, November 6th is going to be fireworks. So, you know, we, we've been tested. And, um, you know, nowadays I know there's a lot of ways to skim by, scoop by. But, you know, I, I have faith in this um, in this system that, you know, if, anything was to pop up that, you know, it would uh, pop up and we would, we would get it handled, but you know, all I'm focused on it is my job and that's, and that's boxing. So, so you've said that not only do you expect to win, but that people shouldn't be surprised if it turns out to be easier than everyone thinks what's behind that confidence. What's behind that confidence is just my preparation, my skills, my, my IQ, my ability. And, um, you know, I've been boxing at a high level for a long time and, um, I just feel like that I got all the tools necessary to uh, get my hair raised. Well, well, speaking of those tools, if Canelo has shown one vulnerability in his career, it's been matching up with skilled boxers. He lost to Mayweather, was pushed close by Trout, arguably could have lost to Lara. Do you feel your skills give you a real advantage here and the style matchup plays into your hands? Yeah, um, I think so. But uh, there's a lot of other factors as well that I possess and hold that I'm able to... uh, use and so you know i'm known for my skills i'm known for my iq and um but there's a lot of other things that i possess as well you know those guys are five six five seven you know i'm six foot one i'm a natural 168 pounder i won the gold glove nationals at 178 pounds back in 2011 and um so i've been you know around this weight or higher for quite a long time and so yeah like i said i just feel like i got everything necessary to get my hand raised 
one person who's certainly been talking up your chances and has actually, I think, said that he thinks you're going to win by a knockout is one of the greatest super middleweight champions, uh, Andre Ward. Uh, I know that he's been working with you. Um, I wonder if you could give us a little insight into your relationship with Andre and, and, and how you guys have been working together. Um, yeah, you know, Andre is somebody that I've known for quite a while now. And uh, he's someone that, you know, I've been able to reach out to whenever need be. Someone who reaches out to me, checks in on me, makes sure everything is going good. And, you know, it's good to have someone like that who's um, very objective when it comes to the sport, not so much emotional. And someone that I can, you know, like I said, reach out to, ask questions, um, get pointers from. He's been in a lot of situations that I'm in now. And um, so to have someone like that who hasn't just been in these situations, but conquered these situations and, and, and won in these situations, you know, it's good to um, it's good to have that. So, so how has this whole pre-fight process, main eventing a pay-per-view, been for you so far? I mean, obviously, you're used to big fights, but has everything felt bigger or, or different for this one? To be honest, people keep asking me that, but it really doesn't. I mean, I've main event, been the main event of uh, a handful of shows now, and uh, I've been saying this in the interviews previous to the before this one, you know, for the uh, Pacquiao Thurman fight, you know, we had to fly to New York and have a press conference. The next day we flew to LA and had a big press conference. And um, that was a huge fight with a ton of media. We'd done the grand arrivals at the MGM, um, you know, and even with the Fox shows, you know, a camera crew coming out for a week and filming us every day and having big media days with tons of cameras around. I mean, I've done this a handful of times now, so it's really not, any different than um, than those situations, you know, the biggest difference is going to be for the viewers that this time that they're going to have to pay to 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 see us uh, throw down. So other than that, you know, it's really been no different. Final question. It's the morning of Sunday, November 7th. How is the world for Caleb Plant different than it was 24 hours earlier? I mean, you know, I've tried to imagine some of the ways that things will be different and, um, you know, it's a huge step in the direction that I want to take as far as I want to be known as the greatest super middleweight of all time. And um, this, I've taken the sport really serious. I'm a dedicated athlete. I'm a disciplined athlete. And I worked really hard to get to this um, situation in this position and, um, you know, getting my hand raised on November 6th is going to play my flag and um, be a huge milestone for me. But um, right now I'm just focused on the fight and uh, I'll get to the rest of that later. Caleb, I know you've been doing a lot of interviews. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Thank you. Okay. Our thanks again to Caleb for making a little time for us so close to the biggest fight of his career. Uh, Before we move on to other business entirely, let's touch on the three-fight pay-per-view undercard. We have a trio of 10-rounders. Good news for the washed old fart who's speaking right now. Only (laughs) 10-rounders. In the co-main event at Super Middleweight, it's veteran former title holder Anthony Durrell against upset-minded Marcos Hernandez. Also on the card in the 122-pound division, undefeated Ray Vargas returns from a two-year layoff to take on Leonardo. Baez, and in the opening bout at 140 pounds, Elvis Rodriguez looks to bounce back from his first career defeat as he meets unbeaten Juan Pablo Romero. Again, we'll be making our predictions on Friday's pod, but for now, Kieran, who of the six undercard fighters or, or which of the three undercard fights are you particularly looking forward to seeing and why? Look, it isn't the greatest pay-per-view undercard the world's ever seen. There's a lot of money invested in the main event, and that doesn't leave a whole heck of a lot to pay anybody else. Um, That said, I am actually somewhat intrigued to see Elvis Rodriguez, um, mostly because I'm curious to see whether top rank was right to cut him loose. Um, Outside of a technical draw in his third fight caused by a clash of heads, he won his first 11 fights by KO, went the distance in his 12th, then was outworked by our buddy Kenneth Sims Jr. to take his first loss. And and right after that, top rank cut him. And, And it seems on the face of it, kind of unfair and precipitous, you know, given that he'd been hyped as a fairly strong prospect prior to that. Um, and I know that a lot of the sort of Twitter commentary on that fight was that even though it looked as if Sims had won it, the sense was that Rodriguez was such a regarded prospect that he'd get the decision anyway. And there was general surprise and happiness when he didn't. Um, so I'm curious, did top rank already have their doubts? Did the mm. Sims loss simply confirm what they already suspected? Were they almost waiting for that first L? Um, was he overhyped? Did he simply happen to look better than he actually was because of his early standard of opposition? Is he likely to just fall away? Or 
does he still have that potential um, that's being given a second opportunity now with PBC? Is it going to sort of re-inspire him? Um, if it doesn't, is unbeaten Romero the man to expose him? So I think that is the, the intrigue for me on the undercard. Uh, what about you? Any, any fight or fighters you'll be making a point of watching with particular interest? Well, the one you just singled out is a good one. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in Rodriguez against Romero. It's a tough fight to pick a winner yeah. in. So uh, if you've got that covered, I think I'd say the fighter I'm most intrigued by is the quote-unquote opponent in the co-main, Marcos Hernandez, who... I got familiarized with a, a bit on that last season of The Contender. Uh, he, he won his first fight, a very close five-round decision. And then, if I'm remembering correctly, he had to exit the competition due to a cut. Um, Hernandez is a guy who has a few losses on his record, but he always comes to fight. And he's pulled his share of upsets, including in his last fight. He dropped and won a decision over 12-0 Jose Armando Resendez. He split a pair of fights with showbox prospect Kevin Newman. He's bumped off a few other guys with one loss, two losses, records like that. He's a classic blue-collar fighter who's played the opponent role a lot. And with Durrell now 37 years old, the door might be open a crack for another one of those Hernandez upset wins. So I'd say he's the guy I'm keeping an eye on who could make himself the story of the undercard. All right. Okay, it is time for the tweet of the week. My turn to pick. Uh, but before I reveal it, let's uh, address another recurring segment, the top five list. It is my turn to assign one to you, and usually we do that at the very end of the show. But I'll note now that I am pushing that assignment back one week. There's a lot going on in boxing, and especially on Showtime Boxing. Next Monday's show is going to be loaded with Canelo yeah. Platt post-fight and a preview of the following week's Showtime Championship boxing card. It seems a bit much to try to cram a top five countdown by you in there as well. So instead, I will wait one week to make the assignment and you'll reveal your list the following week. Plus, I Pretty figure well. by stalling, it gives me the opportunity to give you an assignment spun off of whatever the Canelo plant ah, might be. Indeed. Uh, and hopefully not claymation related. <laughs> I rule nothing out. Uh, <laughs> all right. Now let's get to the tweet of the week. This is something a bit off the beaten path. It has nothing to do with current events. It's from Diane Doniol Valcroz, who is apparently a screenwriter with about 150,000 Twitter followers. Uh, I am unfamiliar with her, I must admit, but this tweet uh, came across my timeline. She shared an image. She tweeted, she wrote, uh, Al Pacino writing a letter of praise to Robert De Niro after seeing Raging Bull for the first time. And then she put up a picture of this handwritten letter, and I will just read it in full. It says, on uh, Al Pacino stationery here. It says, Hi, Bobby. I just got to tell you, I saw your Raging Bull for the first time Saturday. I'm still high from it. It is a monumental piece of art and inspiration to me. I never do this, as you know, simply because if I start now, everything you do, if I don't write a note, you'll think I don't like it. That's not true, of course, but I just had to do this. Sorry if I've embarrassed you. Out of this world, Bobby. Love, Al. Um... So damn cool. Um, <laughs> I especially love him spelling out that this is a problematic thing to do because De Niro could misinterpret it in the future if he doesn't send a letter. But that's how blown away he was here by De Niro's performance. Um, but it does set a precedent. And that must be the same reasoning you've used for never sending me a handwritten letter of praise for any articles I've written. Um, anyway, we know about your spotty history, Kieran, watching the Rocky films. I assume you've seen Raging Bull, but maybe not. Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yes. Okay, okay, yes. good. So anything to say about that movie, De Niro's performance as Jake LaMotta, Pacino's letter, or anything else? Well, I mean, I'm a little disturbed by the fact that it's almost word for word exactly the same letter that Al Pacino sent me about the podcast <laughs> a few weeks ago. Very nice. <laughs> So one wonders how sincere really it is. <laughs> right. um, but no, I've always thought that uh, uh, Raging Bull was really ultimately Robert De Niro. I think up there with, with the Deer Hunter, Robert De Niro's probably greatest performance. I just thought everything about that movie, just the sheer method way he poured himself into that, including packing on the pounds mm -hmm. to to put on uh, the, the performance of Jake LaMotta as the... Uh, uh, a sort of cab cabaret act later in his career. Uh, I, I, I think it's a sensational movie. I, I, I don't watch an awful lot of boxing movies. That one I absolutely do. And uh, 
When somebody like Al Pacino thinks that's an amazing piece of acting and he has to go out of his way to, uh, to commend you on it, then that, that just goes to show. I wonder if he did then feel actually compelled. I wonder if he wrote him a similar note for, like, Meet the Fockers. <laughs> that would be great if he just, like, word for word repeating the same note every movie thereafter because he just didn't want to risk insulting him. Because you know, you know what happens, uh, you know, you get the nearest and you insulted me a little bit and then, you know, you know it just balloons from there. So. Uh, exactly. You, you, you're, not, you're not talking to me? You're not talking to me? <laughs> so it goes. Yes, there you go. All right. Let's move on with some news. Uh, not a whole heck of a lot of news in the world of boxing this past week. Uh, it sort of feels as if the, everyone's sort of caught between catching their breath still from Fury Wilder and holding its breath in the build-up to Can- Canelo Plant. So... Actually, our main news event this week doesn't directly concern boxing at all, but it does involve a boxer. Uh, Clarissa Shields suffered the first defeat of her professional fighting career last week, dropping a split decision to Abigail Montez over three rounds in her second MMA contest. Shields went 77-1 and as an amateur boxer, is 11-0 and as a pro boxer, and is now 1-1 and in MMA. Uh, she was pretty sanguine about the result afterwards. She said she felt she performed better in this outing than in her MMA debut, which she won by TKO. And indeed... Uh, in MMA, losses are rarely considered anything like as career-threatening as they can be in boxing. But, you know, she took a lot of heat from Twitter trolls, not just from MMA fans, but from Jake Paul fans and indeed from Paul himself. Because in the build-up to her contest with Montez, she had, not for the first time, um, been denigrating the YouTuber slash wannabe boxer and even repeated what is almost certainly a total falsehood, that his contracts uh, contain clauses that prohibit his opponents from knocking him out. Um, a loss is a loss. Shields moves on. Uh, knowing her, she's unlikely to be any less opinionated or vocal, although it is notable that those uh, attacks on Twitter in the aftermath must have had some impact as she switched her Twitter account to private. Um, a, a, look, a big part of Clarissa's mystique is the fact that no one has been able to best her since she had that amateur loss to Savannah Marshall. Even though this wasn't boxing, Eric, does her defeat to Montez diminish that mystique in any way? And with a pro rematch with with Marshall on the horizon, would she be well advised to forget about Jake Paul, forget about MMA and just focus on the task ahead? So before this fight, I heard Clarissa interviewed and she said the plan after this second MMA fight was to return to boxing and take the, the big fight people are wanting to see against Savannah Marshall. And then she might not really have any challenges left in boxing and she might dedicate herself full-time to MMA. But I think she was operating under the assumption she'd be 2-0 and in MMA, not 1-1. Mm. So I think this changes that plan. I'm not sure there's a path to her making huge money in MMA, and it's a grueling sport, a punishing sport, if, yeah. if you're not the one dominating the fights, as she does in boxing. Does she really want the beatings to start piling up or the losses to start piling up? I mean, against Montez... She was doing okay. It was a close fight. But those last 20 seconds or so, she was getting pounded. That brief stretch I found tough to watch. Uh, It was interesting watching the live betting odds for this fight. You know, Clarissa was a minus 225 favorite before the fight. Went up to minus 330 after she appeared to win a tough first round. Down to minus 160 after the second round. And suddenly flipped to a plus 130 underdog midway through the third when Montez scored a takedown. It was a close fight. It confirms what we figured after her first MMA fight. Clarissa Shields, for all her athletic ability and all the hard work she's clearly been putting in, is not a great cage fighter, and it'll take a long time for her to possibly become great. So does this loss diminish her mystique in boxing? No, I I don't really think so. If anything, it it adds a layer to her story, you know, offers Mm -hmm. new plot lines to explore in hyping her next boxing match instead Mm -hmm. of the usual, she's the quote, nobody can challenge her. That's kind of all that we usually have to say going into one of her fights. Um, So I don't think this hurts her in boxing at all. I do think it chips away at her MMA marketability. If I were advising her, I'd say stick to boxing, beat Marshall, keep going. Add to your resume however you can. Keep proving you're the quote. Take whatever challenges you can find until it's time to retire. That's what I would advise. But Shields seems to really like challenging herself, and she really yeah. likes proving people wrong. So I wouldn't be surprised if she stuck with her plan to come back to boxing for just another fight or two and then focus on MMA. Mm. 
Um, moving on to the news undercard, we begin with a Canelo-related story. Uh, in the course of doing the publicity rounds for the plant fight, Canelo was asked about his stablemate, young lightweight Ryan Garcia, and he didn't exactly offer a ringing endorsement. He told Complex, quote, Look, Ryan has a lot of talent, but to me, in my eyes, he's wasting a lot of time and wasting his talent. I look at him and don't see him 100% dedicated, and to us, that's a bad signal, end quote. Mm. Uh, someone else who has been on the receiving end of some criticism lately is former heavyweight titleist Anthony Joshua. After beginning his pro career 22-0 with 21 KOs, he's just 2-2 two two with 1 KO in his last four fights, and of course, most recently, dropped his belts to Alexander Usyk. Joshua has recently been seen visiting a number of different gyms around the United States, including the Eddie and Chepo Reynoso gym, where Canelo trains, seemingly in search of a new trainer who can help him get back on track. Joshua, who is normally a polite and non-smack-talky kind of guy, showed a little Deontay Wilder when he declared, I'm tired of fucking losing, and told IFL-TV, I have one thing on my mind, and that's war, that's murder, just to go out there and hurt the guy and take his soul to the point where he wants to give up. That's what boxing's about. Kieran, thoughts on Canelo's tough love and AJ's tough talk? You know, even back when I was... In drafting Ryan Garcia on our top fighters under 25 part a while back. But mm-hmm. I, I did offer the caveat that the scuttlebutt surrounding him was that he was already a bit too believing of his own hype. There was a question of whether he was prepared to listen and put in the hard, hard graft. And when he hitched his wagon to Canelo and the Renosos, I think there was a sense of, okay, he recognizes that that's an issue. He's very much prepared to do the work. It felt as if that answered that criticism because clearly you're not going to be allowed to get away with anything in that gym. Um, And it could well be that Garcia is working every bit as hard as most boxers work, but not hard enough to reach the exceptional standards demanded of Canelo Alvarez and the Reynosos. Um, We should also acknowledge that Garcia has admitted to having some mental health issues. And while I don't know exactly what's going on with him, You know, such issues can be debilitating. And from the outside, that can often be interpreted as a lack of motivation or as laziness. Um, And so maybe that's a factor here. I don't know. But you know that Canelo hasn't just come out and said this without talking to Garcia. Mm -hmm. Um, And one way or another, this has been a promising year turned a frustrating one for for young Ryan Garcia and, you know, most recently now with with that hand injury and he's lost the opportunity to fight Jojo Diaz. 2021 kind of written off now 2022 feels as if it's going to be a pivotal year in in ryan garcia's young career um as for aj look he's obviously frustrated by what happened against Usyk. um he appears to be you know drawing a line here to his first loss to ruiz and subsequent outings he said he's been boxing more but that maybe this was the wrong approach and what he really needs is to rediscover his aggression to to use his size and strength more and I think that's probably a relatively uncont- uncontroversial take uh, to take away from the Usyk um, uh, fight. I don't think he meant, like, he used the word murder. I don't think he meant that in the way that Wilder claimed he actively wanted to kill someone in the ring, which is still one of the weirdest <laughs> statements that's ever been made. Uh, he's just venting, I think. I think he's trying to rediscover the, you know, the proverbial eye of the tiger to, <laughs> see, I know, Rocky. See, I got the reference. Um, <laughs> there you go. I think it's perfectly fine for any fighter to seek a new coach in new directions. Um, and it's understandable if that's what he's doing, but he is now, what is he? 33 now. Um, and he's 10 years into his pro career. I think what's important is finding help and advice from a new corner man is rediscovering self-confidence and identity within himself. And perhaps just getting somebody else to say something different to him is a way for him to do that. You know, it's um, it's just interesting the, with the word murder. It's really mm. in it's 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 all in how you pronounce it. If you say murder him, that's inappropriate in boxing. I don't like hearing that. If you yep. say moiter, you know, I'll moiter him. Then we know you're kind of being silly about it, and I can roll with it. So that's really the key. Say moiter, and it's okay. I don't think AJ was saying moiter de bum. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. Right. No. But I just wanted to be, be clear about Understood. that. Yeah. Understood. Right. Again, the kind of analysis you don't get anywhere else. <laughs> right. Um, uh, finally, in the news segment, uh, we've got another fight that took place recently, a few that have been agreed. 
And one that won't be happening. In the Hulu Theatre at Madison Square Garden on Saturday, Jose Chon Cepeda destroyed Josue Vargas, uh, knocking him down twice and stopping him in the first round. Uh, two of boxing's best have their next date lined up, both in Japan. Naoya Inoue will defend his world bantamweight title against 12-2 Aaron Dipayan on December 14th. And 15 days later, Gennady Golovkin will be squaring off against Ryoto Murata in a middleweight contest. Uh, Jake Paul and Tommy Fury will meet in Tampa on December 18th, putting their glittering records on the line in the main event of a Showtime pay-per-view. But one fight that will not be taking place is the scheduled David Benavidez jose Uscategui super middleweight bout that was slated to headline a Showtime championship boxing card on November 13th. Uscategui tested positive for a synthetic version of EPO. His replacement will be Chiron Davis. Eric, can you tell us anything about Davis or about Inoue's opponent, Depayan? Anything else to talk about from these various items? Well, I guess in some corners, Paul versus Fury is the biggest news item among these. So so I'll start there. Um, This is still sideshow stuff. You know, these are not world-class boxers, not even close. But as sideshow stuff goes, it looks pretty competitive on paper. You know, we've asked for Jake Paul to take on a pro boxer. Now he is. I'm intrigued to see how he does even if I know I won't be seeing elite fighting skills out of either side in this one. Um, as for Inoue's opponent, Aran Depayan, I haven't seen him fight. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a busy man. I did not squeeze in that YouTube research this weekend, um, but I did look at his record. He lost to Tommy Frank in 2019, has won six straight against opponents who were 6-8, and 16-13-2, oh, 6-10, 5-9-1, 0-0, and and 26 and 11. He has no business in the ring against the monster. Um, Golovkin Murata is less of a mismatch, uh, but it's still a bit depressing that this is where Triple G's career yes. is right now. Yeah. Um, Kyron Davis, he's good for a late replacement. He's still probably a step down from Muscatagi, and Benavidez has to be a huge favorite there. But on short notice, he's solid. The, the two most notable results on his record, uh, to tie it back in with the Canelo Plant pay-per-view undercard, are a 12-round draw in February against Anthony Durrell and a split decision win in 2017 over then-unbeaten Marcos Hernandez. Um, so uh, he's a solid fighter, just likely to be overmatched against the uber-talented Benavidez. Um, and last thing, a quick word about Chon Zepeda. He has to be on the short list for the most underrated, under-talked-about boxers in the sport. And yeah. we're a little guilty. We, we didn't even mention this fight yeah. last week. You know, it, it was a long show. There was a lot to cover. But still, um, he delivers excitement every time. He's never an easy out. He won the 2020 fight of the year. He just blew through Josue Vargas. Let's not forget his last loss was a disputed loss against the excellent Jose Ramirez. Don't sleep on Chon Zapata. I think he's live against anyone at 140, including Josh Taylor, even. Wow. There you go. All right. That will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back on Friday with a look at the odds for Canelo plan and our predictions for that whole card. And hopefully we'll have a final pre-fight interview. Uh, Until then, thank you very much for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.